Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. And, and this is a podcast that builds on another podcast that happened some time ago. Some, oh, a few podcasts ago now, we talked to David Haskam, who was a surgeon who had discovered the light and realized that actually just hacking people's bodies apart wasn't the greatest uh, way of dealing with pain. And um, he recommended that I speak to a, a British, he said guru, but I'm sure Georgie Oldfield is more modest than that. But he, who knows? The British guru, Georgie Oldfield, who's sitting in front of me today, and we're going to have a chat about her work, what's involved and what pain is and different approaches to pain management. So first of all, hi, Georgie. Or did I freeze? <laughs> I'll start again. Oh no, let's just start. So, hi, Georgie. Hello there. <laughs> We're having some internet problems, but let's just see if we can soldier on and make this work. So, hi, Georgie. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. And you? So, I'm good. And I see that you're sitting in the UK and we're probably about 100 miles apart and the worst internet connection in the history of internet y things. <laughs> seems like it let's hope not <laughs> yeah. well tell us a little bit about what it is you do well um i suppose two different roles um i'm a physiotherapist um but i run a training organization so i uh, train health professionals and coaches to integrate this approach um, with a mind-body approach to chronic pain um <clears throat> and i also still work physically as well and you do what was the last bit? Last I bit? work. I do some work clinically. All right. But most right. of my work is taken up with the training organisation and yeah. supporting the members as well. Yeah. So you're still getting your hands dirty doing the front oh, end of it. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> it's good actually to do the practice, isn't it? Because it's so much yeah. rebuilds, isn't it? And cycles and you know creates interest. Yeah. So although, how did you get... although these days it's not hands on. <laughs> yes, I get. No, I suppose not. Although it's returning to it from my end of the world, but. Uh, guess different for yours um so how did you get into this uh where did the where did the interest come around the pain side um the interest of pain initially came from uh, because i was working as a physio in the nhs and i started doing so initially my uh, specialism was respiratory then when i had my kids i went part-time and i started working in the community and there were quite a few people who had pain but they had uh, they were unable to get into a um a clinic to be able to be seen because of the amount of pain they were in uh, and I began to realise how little we had to help people with pain. 
um, and it was either sort of mobilising people on an ultrasound machine, and otherwise there wasn't really much to take into the home. So I began to move into some of the uh, complementary therapies like acupuncture, reflex therapy for spinal pain, and I became more and more interested with the better results I was getting as well. Uh, and in the end, I decided in 2005 to leave the NHS and set up my own clinic and just became more and more passionate about helping people with chronic pain. But interestingly, when I left the NHS, I woke up one morning in agony with sciatica. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I had no idea why I had sciatica. And I knew that I'd only just woken up. So what on earth could have caused this sciatica? Um, <clears throat> and so this is my journey as well as my journey with my clients. So for me at that time, I just left the NHS. I had um, given up my monthly salary. I was trying to set up a new business. I, my husband is self-employed as well. And so there was a lot of stress involved with that and some anxiety about making sure that this worked. But at that time, I didn't know that that was relevant because <laughs> I was just sort of putting my mask on and getting out there and treating my clients and you know, getting, getting on with my business. Uh, and it was all going very well, but I, I was actually bottling up my feathers. So, so are you, you seem to be implying that the sciatica was as a result of the stress and the, and the life situation in which you found I, yourself. I didn't know that at the time, but yes. And I couldn't put my shoes and socks on for a couple of weeks. Luckily, I went to see um, a lady who actually was the first person to say to me, so what's going on in your life? <laughs> and I just started saying, well, yes, I'm doing this. And then, <laughs> you know, and it all, then I realized that, yes, I'm holding a lot of stress within my body and it clearly had manifested um, its, in symptoms. So it took another couple of weeks and pain settled down. But in the meantime, I was also beginning to question why so many of my patients would come to me um, having woken up with pain like I did. Um, or having and having done nothing the night before, maybe blaming the pillow on their bad neck, <laughs> and even though they'd slept with a pillow for months or years. Um, there were people who came to me who had just done something they normally did without any problem, and they developed pain. Or they came to me after they'd had pain for years, and again, they couldn't put their finger on anything physical that they'd done to cause the pain. Um, but, but to jumping in for a second, because yeah, yeah. this is fascinating, because because uh, now I, I see the opportunity for a quick diagnosis for myself. So uh, <laughs> so I've got a sore knee, okay. <laughs> uh, like the tibia, you know, the bit that sits at the front. So my tibia mm -hmm. is actually sore to the touch. So yeah. are you saying that that's a manifestation of some sort of psychological or emotional problem? Or is it a physical thing? Or could it be both? It could be both. Um, and then what we need to do is, we, or it could be one or the other. Uh, no, it couldn't be one or the other because actually you cannot split the mind of the body. So, you know, even if you've had an injury, what we know is that physical damage um, does not determine the amount of pain we have. So some people might, um, uh, they might, in fact, my son broke his knee a couple of years ago. He had no pain. He broke, he only realized he'd broken it because he landed badly on the kite, when kite surfing. He couldn't get back on the board because his knee gave way. Right. So he'd broken his leg, but he had no pain. And yet other people have severe pain. And so it's about, you know, there you can't lick, you can't split the mind and body. So back to your knee, of course. <laughs> you, we'd need to, you know, have an understanding of first of all, have you had an injury? Have you actually had an accident to injure your knee? Uh, well, I, I could I could spend the next half an hour being diagnosed, but I really think probably more people have got more to be interested in. But let's but let's 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 just reverse a little bit because what you're saying is fascinating. So so 
let's let's unpack what pain is. And then you did talk about the difference between, and then you've used the terms severe pain and chronic pain. So should we rewind and just sort of get the terms straight in everybody's heads? Because I think people bandy these words around without any real knowledge about them. So yes, um, and that's true because often the public will call chronic uh, severe pain chronic. Yeah. Chronic pain, whereas chronic in the medical terms means persistent, and yes. that is often now a word that is being used more: persistent pain. Um, but the severity of pain has no no evidence has ever linked the severity of pain with the, uh, the amount of tissue damage um, that is found that anybody has. In fact, people can have severe pain but no tissue damage because it's a protective response. Pain is always a, a protective response, part of our fight or flight response, yes. and therefore it's affected by so many different factors. And and a lot of people would accept that we have pain receptors around her body but actually the pain is felt in the brain is that right i would suggest it's the pain the brain perceiving the pain but the pain is felt in the body right so okay you... so, so unpack that a bit for me because um because i mean, hear these words again bandied around so so how does this work Where, where's the link between the body and the mind in that case well the body they're inextricably linked anyway. Sure. You can't split them. And how we would do that neurophysiologically, you know, I don't think anybody would be able to prove this is the difficulty, I think, of actually mind-body medicine is where's the evidence to show that there is a link there. But we know the, the evidence is that we can tell that, for example, um, so it's the primal brain. The primal brain has uh, perceives the pain. So the primal brain will protect us from a threat. And it's similar to, for example, an, an animal. You know, if an animal is captured, let's say a deer is captured by a lion and then but manages to escape but it's injured, it will then go and lick its wounds and it will be, you know, find its home or safe place or wherever deer go. Um, and it, while it's there, it will have pain, it will have anxiety, there'll be sort of brain fog, um, confusion, uh, it, it will feel fatigued and you know, having lack of motivation. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for all those symptoms, which of course are of, uh, symptoms that people with pain and other forms of pain like fibromyalgia um, have, or basically the reason for that is that it's protecting that deer for, from actually just hobbling out and then possibly being killed the next time. Right. So it's protecting the deer from a threat. So when our primal brain goes into fight or flight, it's actually protecting us from what is perceived to be a threat. And that perceived threat could just literally be um, uh, feeling anger, you know, to an, an, as an extreme level. If somebody has grown up with very volatile parents or a very volatile parent, whenever they get angry, they would hit the child. It's quite common for that child to grow up perceiving that, becoming non-confrontational, perceiving that anger is really bad. And it might have been that at one point that child was angry back before it learned that that was the safe thing to do. And then double whammy, the primal brain goes, oh, okay, we can't feel, feel anger here. And yet what they might notice, so they're often these people calm and quiet and they're not generally um, angry people at all, very placid. And yet we all are angry at times, but they might only perceive when they've been triggered that maybe they're a bit irritated or frustrated because the primal brain is doing a really good job of actually protecting them from the threat of anger surfacing. Don't know what could happen if that happened, but if that continued to be um, 
bottled up basically and time goes on and this continues, then that can manifest in somebody having a, a headache, migraine, back pain or knee pain or whatever it happens to be. Right. So, Make sense? Hmm. yeah, no, no, it takes total sense. And I, and I, and, uh, I, this is not meant to be patronising at all, but it is refreshing to talk to someone who talks about primal brain and not reptilian brain, which drives me nuts, I'm afraid. Because <laughs> as if we're, you know, anyway, that's another thing yeah. for a thing. So that, so that, I get that. So pain's protecting us from threats. Now, I'm guessing there's different sorts of pain because I'm guessing, and, and feel free to re-educate me here because I'm just asking the question. I'm guessing there are different sorts of pains, um, uh, triggers, causes. So in other words, if mm. someone smacks you in the face, that's a different sort of pain from waking up with a sciatica, for example. Yeah, yes. So, but even if somebody is hit in the face or they have an actual injury pain sport or whatever, the body heals. Yes. And so it's, if that pain persists after the body would have healed, which would have been in a few weeks with the you know, worst case scenario, then when pain persists, then you've got to question why. And right. what's interesting is that, that when they, the studies have looked at why pain persists, it's nothing to do with the extent of the injury. It's, it's to do with whether somebody was anxious at the time of the injury, whether they were depressed whether they lost hope for the future or had negative uh, beliefs about pain in people, as well as if they'd experienced past trauma. So those are all things that actually affect whether pain will persist. And the factors that they found that affect how we perceive pain are things like, again, anxiety, depression, ruminating, anticipation of pain, uh, fear. These are all things that actually can affect whether we feel severe pain or less severe pain, for example. And oh, God, so many questions. So, so people talk about having a high or low pain threshold. Mm. But, I mean, you must have heard. So, what is what? What? what so, actually, that um, attitude towards pain you're saying would affect the degree to which people would feel pain. Yes. Yes, because there are lots of different factors that will affect how much we feel pain, whether it's a low or high pain threshold or whether there's somebody who's just got a really strong mindset and they're not a ruminator and they're a coper and they just get on with it. Um, maybe that determines it as opposed to whether somebody is a warrior, a ruminator, you know, becomes very anxious. But the other thing is that they, with one study, they, they actually predicted with a 92% accuracy who would have pain a month after the SIBO car crash? So basically, they did a psychological profile test. They then put these subjects, probably students who were wanting the money, in a, in a pretend car that they sort of you know, pulled back and then it launched forward, knowing that at the point of impact, there was no way it could cause any tissue damage. And yet, after straight afterwards, 20% of them had pain. And that's down to beliefs and fear about whiplash and things like that. Beliefs mm. play a huge part in this as well. So a month later, 10% uh, of them still had pain. And those people have been predicted with 92% accuracy as to which those were the ones that would have pain a month later. Yeah. So personality plays a huge part as well. Yes, but you're not saying, you're not trivialising pain. You're not no, saying that no. pain is an important part of things. You're saying that it's it's about understanding persistent pain. Is that is that more your thing? Is it? It's understanding persistent pain, so that we can help people recognise that they can become empowered. Um, that there is so much more. Once you recognise that it's not 
it's imaging you had 10 years ago that's the cause of the pain. You know, if that's the cause of your pain, you're not empowered at all. You're powerless to do anything about it, except to go to a doctor and have injections or take medication or whatever. Whereas actually, when you realize that this is within our control, that there's so much we can do, well, that is empowering even to know that. So we work with people who actually change their beliefs show the evidence around this because actually once you see the evidence and you can really see what's going on and then we, they can look at their story so for the another part of this is that not just current stress or personality and behaviors but there's masses of evidence around adverse childhood experiences and how they um, are linked with chronic pain and other ill health in later life um sorry uh during interesting podcasts, I made lots of notes. <laughs> you caught me there making lots of notes. Oh, um, on. <laughs> yes, no, no, that's all right. You just caught me out there. Um, but, but, but I'm just thinking of things like um, you'll meet people who have um, cancer, who experience a lot of pain. So that's not a personality thing. That's part of the treatment and the body and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. When, when we uh, take people on to work with, with uh, psychophysiologic disorder or whatever term, there are too many terms, unfortunately, so mind, body, syndrome, whatever, or TMS, as Dr. Sane, the pioneer in our field, calls it, called it attention myomial syndrome. <coughs> um, then I forgot, Russian actually. How about cancer pain? That was it, cancer. So what we always do when we have patients who come to us is we make sure that everything else is ruled out. So if they um, have a tissue damaging disorder like cancer infection or an autoimmune disorder, um, a fracture, we would not treat that as um, a mind-body condition. Yes, it can help because as we know, pain is affected by personality behaviors, childhood experiences, et cetera. So yes, we can help, but we're not gonna treat it as a true uh, mind-body condition where we could actually help them um, resolve those symptoms very well. Um, but having said that, we also know that the um, adverse childhood experiences studies that were started in the 1990s and have been going on ever since mm. does show that the more adverse childhood experiences people have experienced, the more likely they are to have um, more um, ill health in later life. It's a graded relationship. And ill health in later life doesn't just include chronic pain, but it does include things like cancer. And autoimmune disorders and um, heart disease and all the main killers in life. So to me that makes me feel that we as health professionals we need to be actually asking those questions and considering those. So if somebody has got cancer, you know, I don't treat people with cancer, but if somebody, you know, oncologists are working with people with cancer, then I would suggest they should also be considering what as well because if that person has had adverse childhood experiences then that could help as well there's there's some there's some famous um research around uh, the impact of laughter and humor on patient recovery mm. and and that would i mean that's that was carried out quite a long time ago uh, yes. and you're saying that your research was sort of kicking off towards the end of the 1990s or, or whatever but it, it would sort of that would sort of explain that research because that research that no one could understand why <laughs> laughter and, yeah. and attitude and you know um, mm. positivity and all that sort of stuff mental conditioning no one could understand yeah. that why that would have an impact on hard patient outcomes but i suppose what you're saying is that that explains the two things it is actually that there is this there is the ability to affect your own body 
Yes, absolutely. And so when we work with people, we um, we look at the, how are they nurturing themselves mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Because and the, I know David Hanscom talks about this a lot as well. It's about have, having laughter, um, encouraging people to have fun. People who live with chronic pain, they are um, often very fixated on the pain because it's painful. And therefore, you know, can I, will I manage to sit in that meeting for that long? And I go to that event because I might not be able to sit in that chair. I must be careful how I move or whatever. But that increasing focus on the pain is very fear-based and that actually fuels the pain itself. So this is about the more we can have a life and connect with people, <laughs> of course that's been a problem in the last year, the more connection we have, the more laughter we have, the more we play and have fun, that plays a part in all this as well. So, so that's really interesting. So are you saying, uh, you may not be saying this, but um, is, is it the case therefore then that if you have someone who is, um, as you describe, saying, you know, I can't do this because of my pain, I can't do this because of my pain, um, are you saying that the, 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 the solution is actually therapy rather than pain management? Are you mean psychotherapy? Uh, well, there's a vast majority of therapies. Could be hypnotherapy, could be right. artistic therapy, music therapy. Okay. Well, it's quite interesting in that a therapy. number, yeah. <laughs> well, in America, therapy is psychotherapy. So uh, good that's point. why I was asking yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I only knew that since starting with all this work, and then many of my colleagues are American. Yeah. Um, but now this is very much about emotions. So it's less about the story behind it. And that's why so much of these somatic psychotherapies are coming about now. So it's more about the emotion and quite often people who read our books, they get what we call a book recovery. I was somebody who resolved all my recurring health problems in, um, you know, mine were constant, but things like sciatica, the odd migraines, certainly headaches, neck pain, you could go on and on, and things that I blamed like knee pain from a skiing injury I had, as well as bowel stuff and gallbladder stuff. I resolved those from reading all the books that I could find initially when I came across this in 2007. Um, the only thing about, so there are people that can recover with a book recovery, but many more need more help than that, more individualized support. Um, but I mean, I'm not a psychotherapist, but I help people resolve these symptoms and regain their lives. And that's really by helping them understand why they are who they are, what experiences they've gone through have impacted and triggered their pain, learning to deal with some of them, like, uh, you know, and we do a lot of self-soothing. Um, we do a lot of using, uh, a lot of calming, calming the primal brain, basically. So slow belly breathing, emotional awareness work, somatic tracking, all these things to self-soothe, as well as actually things like journaling to be able to acknowledge. So if your pain came on after you were um, threatened to be sacked, for example, than actually writing a really fiery, angry letter, unsent letter, to this their boss to ex really express it is far healthier than sitting there and ruminating and, and moaning to all your friends and, and feeling sorry for yourself, which is a natural thing that we tend to do because we're not like animals. We have this prefrontal cortex that overthinks and worries and things, um, whereas animals just run away and then they forget about it and they expend the energy, they metabolize the chemicals. And we tend to think about it and worry about it. And that tends to increase and make it worse, the emotions worse. And then that often is when they can wake up in the morning and have pain or bend over and pick something up and they have pain and they blame it on the bending over. 
but it's probably all this stuff that's going on in their life at the time. But but, but you actually, but, and, and I keep going on about this just for, so people can have arthritis and arthritis can cause pain bending over as well. Well, that's interesting <laughs> because actually there's no evidence for that. Okay. There's no, in fact, one of the myths is that going Talk running. Talk about my hands. Should I tell you all about my hands? Well, I could tell you about my hands Go because on, when I was 40, I couldn't move my fingers and thumbs because I was in so much pain. And I ended up going to see a specialist who basically said, oh, it's osteoarthritis. Whereas my GP and I thought it might be rheumatoid arthritis, more fear. And because he was so dismissive and said, well, it's fine, it's just a bit of arthritis. And I have a loose body in my thumb. That means a, a bit of bone in my thumb that clicks every now and again. But, and I had acupuncture, which I believe helped the pain at that time. Only two sessions, but it coincided when I look back, seeing the specialist who each time said, well, just carry on, do what you're doing. I'm now 60 and I don't have pain. I still have that loose body. I don't, and I look back and I can see it was at a very challenging time in my life. So arthritis, if you look at scans, for example, if you look at uh, the MRIs of spinal degeneration, so that's basically osteoarthritis in the spine. And they show that in people who don't have pain, by the age of 50, then literally 60% of people will have a disc bulge and 80% of people have disc degeneration. So that's normal degeneration. So arthritis is wear and tear. It's like gray hairs of the spine. So it's quite normal. So you can, and I've seen people with the most horrendous um, arthritis in the spine, and yet actually they don't want to be pain free. Or they've come with something else, and you can see that they've got um, some arthritis, or they've been told they have arthritis somewhere else, but they sometimes have pain in, let's say it's a knee, they have pain in that knee, but then they can't understand why it jumps to the other knee that's okay or more recently somebody said that they'd had their hips scanned because of arthritis and they were told yes you know that that arthritis is sort of quite moderate but there's some um tears in your uh, cartilage there he said well that's not the one i've got pain in it's the other one i've got pain in <laughs> so this is again about you know pain being a protective response and it, it's not linked to the findings in scans. And that's really important because the findings in scans can be really scary. And more and more of the public are actually reading them these days. Uh, in fact, uh, I spoke to a client this last week who shared with me the findings, which he was finding really scary, but actually they were just moderate arthritic changes in her spine. But the findings studies show that actually if you have a scan, an MRI scan, there's more risk of you having surgery, injections, or medication. So it's, it costs more <laughs> on the health system to actually scan people, not just because of the scan, but because they're more likely to have, got, have um, medical intervention or surgical intervention. But is that just a st statistical anom anomaly? Because if you uh, scan people, you're more likely to find something that's actually wrong. What happened initially was that they only used scans to actually scan people who had pain. Oh, so see. there was scan people who had pain and therefore, and I remember a radiologist when I came across this work saying, well, uh, well, I see the people in pain, you know, I can see, she just wouldn't accept this, what I was saying, because she said, well, I see all the um, scans of people when they come to see me. And I was saying, yes, but you see people in pain. You don't see the scans of people not in pain. Mm. And then when you look at the numerous studies, there are numerous studies now done on people who don't have pain and the significant, you know, was it 96% of 80-year-olds will have a disc bulge? 
okay? You know, these are normal findings. They're not the cause of pain. And you cannot, if you, um, and they've done studies on this, if you look at scans and you try and match them up with the people who have pain and the symptoms they have, you can't do it. It doesn't work because you cannot relate findings on scans with the amount of pain somebody's in. So, but I mean, what you're saying is something of a game changer, isn't it? Uh, well, it shouldn't be because the evidence has been coming out since the 1970s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that just because the evidence has come out doesn't mean it's not a game changer, does it? No, but it is a game. Yeah, it is. But there's, I mean, the trusts out of physiotherapy are now telling people all this. Years ago, they brought about the myths of that pain. This is all involved. Get, get people active. Just pain doesn't relate to tissue damage. Pain doesn't relate to degeneration of the spine, for example. Um, we've got Lorimer Mosley and all the his team um, in Australia who are doing the, a lot of studies around this. We've got um, Peter Sullivan, who also does a functional cognitive uh, approach, which again looks at talks about all the same evidence but we we are still behind the times in the evidence it's, and that's the sad thing it takes so long for evidence to actually reach the place where clinicians need to know and the public need to know as well yes but also there's a vested interest i would suggest in the medical profession to um yeah. stick with the the accepted paradigm of you know if it's painful cut it out or yes. take a pill because actually otherwise what what are they for which is why david hanscom stopped being a spinal surgeon yeah yeah, interesting um, so so if, if if i was a person in pain or mm -hmm. i knew someone who was in pain what would be the first place to look for a handy resource to introduce me to the to this new idea well there's uh, some information on the website which is um serpa.org so s for sugar i r p to a.org so it's aimed at health professionals but it's also aimed at the public as well there's a find a practitioner list, um, my books on there, Chronic Pain, Your Key to Recovery. So that's a good introduction. Plus it has um, a, a lot of strategies there. Because this is very much an educational and self-empowering approach. And that's why I wouldn't even assess somebody a full assessment for this work unless they already had a good understanding. Because these days I don't see acute patients. I, I only see people who already know this work. Um, and that so the more they understand at the beginning the better it, it is absolutely fascinating i must admit uh and you would believe me i'm sure that i've been saying this stuff for years i mean i did some work on pni stuff in the must be 20 years ago when right. we were when we were first talking about emotional intelligence to bring that over and this idea that you know as you learn hypnotherapy and all that sort of stuff it, these things are all quite commonly understood aren't they yes. but, but somehow either either the interpretation device is not working at a mass level or there is a vested interest in people not hearing what, what there is to be said. And, I, it's, and both are possibly true. And of course, there could be other reasons as well. So let me just just um, sort of just, just do that again. So that was serpa.org, S-I-R-P-A.org. And, um, and there's a really interesting section on the website called I'm in Pain. And then you can go to Helpful Information and you can see all sorts of groovy stuff and is your book on amazon by any chance georgie it is yes it's on um audible hardback and kindle so i'm just just looking for it now what's it called chronic pain your key to recovery right um did you bump into all that stuff on telomeres that was all the rage at one stage yes yes i've come across it i really got into it in a big way but yes i'm um, aware of it no thoughts on that at all well, it sounds like, yeah, 
uh, very often keeping with this sort of work Yes. Yes, they've got a corner pen UK to recover. Yes, yeah, on Amazon's got oh, it's got great reviews, and um, and you can get hold of that. And Amazon UK, so I'm sure it'll be on Amazon.com uh, as well, and, and other is. Amazons. So that's great. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, today was simply an introduction. It was just a, a really to sort of explore more the work that uh, or more the thoughts that David Haskin was introduced to, because his his story is more about the fact that he'd moved from the dark side, from yes. surgery to this side, and of course we all a lot of us sit on this side. It was, it was hearing more about your ideas, so. That, so that's absolutely fascinating. So if so, if I'm a member of the public in pain, I could go to your site. But tell me about the training you offer for health professionals as well. So again, you can find that on um, uh, on the website. I think that one's I'm a professional or health professional, I think it says. I should know, shouldn't I? That's right. <laughs> um, I'm looking and... at it. It does say that. <laughs> health professionals, yeah. Yeah, health professionals. So, yes, yeah, so we do an introduction level CPD course and we do... Um, a more in-depth course for health professionals and just CPD, uh, but we also run a membership so that we can support people because it's quite challenging if you are if you come across this work as a health professional or a coach, and then suddenly you are faced with people not really understanding you or people getting quite angry because they think you're saying it's all in the head, whereas actually it's all in the brain, um, and and it's a way and people are trying to sort of change the way they work. So we have a, a membership as well where we support and guide the um, practitioners once they've done their training and it's a really growing active group of people uh, yeah. so we're part, very much part of the global group as well David Hanscom as well um, and really just a movement trying to uh, get people to think more about the emotional side the mindset um, and basically that link between the mind and the body and being well. trauma informed yeah, I mean, I'm amazed. I'm sitting here with a bad back, arthritis in my fingers, a sore <laughs> elbow, um, what, what that thing on me tibia, me thing, me jiggy, and um, well, I mean, I can't, you know, look at me poorly arms. I mean, we have a routine in here about how's your poorly neck, how's your poorly arms, and so I'm going to tell my wife about. I mean, what will I have to say to? I've got nothing to talk to my wife about now if I get rid of all these ailments. <laughs> and you shouldn't be talking to her about them either. No, that's no. focusing on them. <laughs> no, we need to focus on shopping, which I've always thought was a better oh, gosh, thing to focus on. <laughs> George, it's been brilliant to spend time with you today. It's been absolutely remarkable. Serpa.org is the um, website we said, and if we want, and that's the best place to get hold of you and your books and everything else. Any yes. any other places we need to look, or is that the best place? They probably are, but yes, that's probably the best place. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Are you and I going to chat outside of this? But um, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Take care. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed, and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.